Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this single segment episode, Anne from PE Podcast joins me to analyze the music of the 16th Pokemon movie, Genesect and the Legend Awakened, in which the Japanese song Smiling Face goes up against the English version's We're Coming Home. These songs are different in both tone and approach, making for an interesting comparison. If you want our take on the movie itself, be sure to listen after the outro. Thanks. Hi folks, Stephen here. I'm on the phone with Anne from PvP Podcast, and as you've probably guessed, we're doing another Pokemon movie music discussion. This time around, we are discussing the music of... Genesect and the Legend Awakened, which is the 16th Pokemon movie. Um, it's actually the last movie of the fifth generation, the black and white generation. And it's known for a number of things that we're going to be kind of primarily talking about the music of it. Let's see, on the Japanese side, Anne, uh, can you introduce just briefly the band there? I, I, I know who it is and I know the song name, but the, the band name is a little beyond me. All right, this is Ikimono Gakari with their song Egao, which translates to smile or smiling face. Yeah, not to be confused with an earlier Japanese Pokemon song called Smile from, I believe, the third generation. Uh, on the English side, we have Jess Domain, not to be confused with uh, Jess Turner from the Keldeo movie. Uh, this is Jess Domain, different person, with We're Coming Home, which has a, a bit of an interesting story. Um, but... Before we get into sort of the, the music and going through each side, we do want to say uh, sort of how we experienced this movie, uh, at least initially. So let's see. I'm pretty sure I saw this movie on Cartoon Network when it originally debuted. Eventually got the DVD, which you, you saw there. This was released, let's see, in America. Um, I think it was actually around the time X and Y came out. might have been. It was a little bit later. But I saw it there. Watched it, enjoyed it. I also managed to pick up, I've never taken it out of the shrink, kind of sadly, but I have the um, Japanese Blu-ray that I picked up in 2014 when I went to Japan for uh, my uh, uh, sabbatical from work. Um, you may remember that blog series I did. This is one of the things I picked up, I believe, at the Pokemon Center. Nice. Yeah, it... it a Japanese Blu-ray will play in a North American Blu-ray player because they are part of the same region, but I've never really had a reason, I think, to, to look in there. And what was sort of your experience with this movie? How did you uh, first get to see it? Um, a lot the same, actually. This is one, yeah, I watched it on Cartoon Network, and I believe I was... I believe I was reviewing it for another podcast, so it was one of the few times that I was able to watch a Pokemon movie and then, like, immediately gather with people and talk about it and, and like kind of, you know, get all hyped up fan boy and fan girl about it. So I, it is kind of special to me for that reason. Yeah. So not sure how much else we can say there, but we do want to sort of give that. So definitely easier for you to get to than the Keldeo movie. You may remember a couple episodes ago, we discussed that and you had quite a time tracking that one down. This one uh, found its way to you a lot easier. It sounds like. Oh, Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've got sort of the background, uh, in case you're not sure, the uh, the, the basic plot of this movie 
this is where the, the main Pokemon is Genesect. It's actually a herd of Genesect. One of them is red. And uh, they've been revived from fossils, and they're trying to find a home for themselves, starting with what they remember from before they became fossilized. In the meantime, on the flip side of this, is Mewtwo. Canonically, not the same Mewtwo as in the first movie. I believe it's different. And it looks a little different in certain scenes, which we'll get to later. Um, This was, of course, in the lead-up to X and Y, if memory serves me. So a lot of stuff going on there, but uh, Mewtwo is sort of runs into them and is sort of trying to manage them. And it's a little hard to describe the relationship there, but that's basically where it goes. And it takes place in this very New York-like city uh, where Ash, Silen, and Iris have all uh, dropped by. And they go to this uh, sort of this nature conservatory in a faux central park. And that's where a lot of the movie takes place. So uh, enough about the sort of plot synopsis there. Let's talk about the music. Uh, so I still cannot, from memory, pronounce the name of that band. But Anne, <laughs> tell us about them. All right. So uh, Ikimono Gakari kind of has a cute uh, story about how they got their name. Uh, the two male members of the band, uh, Yamashita Hotaka and Mizuno Yoshiki met in elementary school, and at that time they were what was called the Ikimonogakari, meaning they're the kids in charge of taking care of the plants and the animals and the living things at school, the Ikimono. So that was their school responsibility. And when they got to high school, they eventually formed the band, um, and they called them they called themselves Ikimonogakari based off their childhood together. And uh, the female member of the band, Yoshioka. Kiyoe, she was the little sister of one of their classmates. So there's kind of a, a tie to their childhood there. Um, let's see. So these little teenagers, they formed their band and the progression is very much the sort of indie artist trajectory. Like they started playing acoustic guitar and harmonica and, you know, singing covers on street corners and that kind of thing. And slowly over time started getting attention and playing in actual buildings. And um, they also started writing more of their own songs and eventually graduated to be performing in proper concert halls. Um, and 2006 is when they joined a major label, um, Epic Records with Sony Japan. And by 2008, they made it onto the prestigious year-end music program I've mentioned a few times, Kohaku Utagasen. And they have been a staple of that show pretty much every year since. In 2012, they got to do the Olympic theme song for NHK's broadcast, which is um, one song that all three of them collaborated together to write. And they, these days, you can pretty much expect anything they release to get into the top five. Um, they did take a short hiatus uh, for a year in 2017 to recharge, but they're back as of last November, and they're still active today. Um, and in the meantime, uh, Kiyoe has done a little bit for herself as a solo artist and released an album called Utairo, um, and is going to be doing the theme for the 2019 Rugby World Cup, I guess. As far as their style, they're mostly known for... Uh, soft pop rock today. They used to be a little bit more sort of indie rock and a little bit more variety as they were doing a lot of cover songs. Um, But they've kind of solidified into just very soft, poppy, light sounds. Um, They usually use an acoustic guitar, an electric guitar, and a harmonica primarily, and very often performed stripped down versions of what is already kind of light, light listening. Um, 
And they, like I said, they're still signed with Epic Records and they write and compose almost all of their own stuff. Um, Yoshihiki is the one who has the most songs under his belt, but um, Hotaka writes too and Kiyoe has collaborated on one or two songs as well. Um, and trivia fact, Kiyoe voiced Evie for this movie. Well, that's a neat little thing. I know as you mentioned, quite a bit of athletic uh, events there that they've done music for. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that seemed to be a pattern. It, I just I couldn't help but notice that. It's just kind of surprising to me because they're not the only Japanese artist I've seen get that, but these guys get big name tie-ins. Like some of our past artists we've talked about, you know, have gotten anime or drama tie-ins or commercials or something. But Ikimonogakari as I said, ever since 2008, where they kind of joined the Kohaku level of A-list artists, they've been getting the big ticket items. They've been getting the worldwide broadcast type songs and the, yeah, the sporty things and big festival events. So I, I, I don't think it's especially unusual, like for a Japanese artist of their caliber, but I do think uh, in talking and comparing about the other artists we've talked about. Like, it really shows what kind of status they have in Japan. Gotcha there. Well, in that case, uh, why don't you tell us uh, any idea how they got picked for this project? Obviously, they have a, a pretty good uh, resume for it, but any idea how they wound up for this movie? Um, It's kind of broken record. It's my usual answer. I'm pretty sure they just were contracted either themselves or their label by Pokemon and the Pikachu project. Being as this movie released in, am, am I wrong in saying 2013 in Japan? Because it was 14 for us, right? It was probably actually very late 2013 in America or relatively late because I know it went uh, not too far from like the launch of X and Y. So if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah, so my guess is that would have been slightly after they would have been all over the airwaves for 2012 London, I think, <laughs> Olympics and their song that they did for NHK's broadcast. So these guys would have been like hotter than hot at that exact moment. So my guess is they were probably just contracted out. I don't think there's much to say about that other than they, they were really ticket items at the moment. Understood. So as far as this song goes, did they write it themselves? Did they have help from anyone or any other production details you might know? Yes, uh, they did write it themselves. Um, in fact, it was uh, Mizuno Yoshiki, the one of the male members of the band. He is the one who composes most of their stuff, and he did both the lyrics and the composition for this piece. Makes sense. I guess that's what we've got to go on there, but... If we head over to the English side, Jess Domain. So this is uh, one of the ones I was very fortunate to be able to interview her, both about her career and about uh, this song. Actually, uh, one thing I want to direct you to is if you want to know more about the production of this song and its structure and whatnot, she actually put up together like a five and a half minute video back in the day talking about sort of the inspiration and some of the other things like that, which we'll be bringing up here. But she does a, a great job of uh, talking about that. Um, and like I said, I also did an interview with her, so I have some good stuff to go on here. But anyway, it seems that she is originally from Detroit, and uh, her whole family seems to have a, a fairly musical background. She was in some ballet-type stuff. I think she mentioned either like one of her cousins or her brother or something like that as a DJ. 
and uh, various other things. So her career trajectory very much put her in a musical direction, and she eventually moved to New York City. And uh, I think she says she has kind of a pop jazz sound, which uh, we'll talk about that a bit later. But as far as actually getting onto this, this is kind of an interesting one because um, if you look at the credits, uh, John Leffler and David Wolford are credited with producing this track, but they really didn't have anything to do with the actual writing of it uh, all that much. Jess basically wrote it herself, and it, it sort of traces its origin back to the story involving uh, Jess's niece, who she was like uh, three years old at the time, and she uh, sort of went next door without telling everyone. And um, when asked why she did that without uh, talking to folks, she said, well, uh, I'm a ninja, which a bit of an odd story, I guess, in the um, things there. But that's sort of where We're Coming Home got its start as an idea, and then it was eventually sort of uh, worked a little bit into this. One interesting thing, actually a couple interesting things I wanted to mention, is if you uh, take a look at uh, the video she did where she does this uh, dry erase board thing, where she sort of explains things. She mentions like she only had a couple days to put the at least the initial version of the song together. And she didn't know a ton about Pokemon at the time. And she learned very quickly and sort of put things together. But um, she was working for Fieldhouse, which, as some of you may know from some of my interviews, is, or at least was, I think it might still be around in some form, uh, the uh, sort of the publishing agency or, or whatever, I forget exactly their publishing agency or what, but the John Leffler, who uh, is involved with. And that's sort of how she got into the orbit there. And then, like I said, she was eventually picked out. Uh, one kind of interesting thing is actually that they gave, uh, she actually gave them a second song, which I don't know much about. It was a, she said it was more of a ballad, but she said that the one that ended up getting used is We're Coming Home, she thinks fits better. And it got recorded, and it got put on there, and then, like, uh, the, the production side of, of the Pokemon anime, I guess they took care of splicing it into the end credits like you, you would see there. And that's sort of a, a the story there, and that's what we know. As far as where Jess is today, uh, I did look up at her website. The most recent thing I could find was for 2018, The Culture of Now apparently is an off-Broadway play that she had some involvement. I think she they listed her as a writer and possibly a performer. Um, so she is still uh, doing work in, I don't know if it's a musical or, or, or what there, but uh, still doing work and still um, out there performing. So I think that's a, a good thing to hear. Indeed. Live the dream, Jess. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, well, that's, that gives us sort of the background on the artists and how these songs ended up where they are. Uh, let's go back to the Japanese side. Uh, Smiling Face. It has a um, very bouncy feel to it, I would say. And is, is that sort of uh, what you got out of it uh, as far as its overall tone? Very much so. Like, oh, such bounce. <laughs> I, it's, oh, gosh, it's just ridiculously catchy, that rhythm on the chorus. And... Like every time Ikimonogakari performed this, Kyoe always had like the biggest smile on her face. Like I don't know if it's possible to sing something that catchy without grinning. And you know the it's pretty standard fare for them, but there's a really heavy pop influence on it as well that just kind of helps with that light bouncy feel. Yeah, actually, I, I have to kind of confess, it's been a long time since I had listened to it, and in part because the station's been off the air for a couple years now. But um couldn't remember how it went until it started, and then it's like, oh, yeah, I, re I remember this one. 
uh, when I was listening to it earlier today to uh, refresh my memory. Um, but yeah, definitely very lively. I also listened to the instrumental version and uh, very lush instrumentation throughout all of this. I think there's some strings, some guitar, and and things like that. Um, yeah, their final recordings kind of padded out a bit from what their like stage persona is. That's not totally uncommon. No. So what is the song actually talking about, though? I, unfortunately, I did not get a chance to look up a, a translation of this song. So I think you're going to have to really fill me in here, Anne. I'll do my best. Um, the lyrics like, are basically about wanting to make someone happy, wanting to be able to bring a smile to their face, um, to be able to smile for somebody else, and ultimately learning how to smile for yourself. And the kind of the concept of making other people happy and learning how to make yourself happy. Um, and also perhaps not being very good at it or, or recognizing that the world changes around you and you can't always control the things that affect you or your friend's happiness. But because that friendship is precious, you want to try to give and find happiness anyway. It, it's, I don't know, they, Ikimono Gakari, they, they write very personal, heartfelt lyrics, but at the same time, they often write lyrics very simply. And in this song, very much so, like looking through the lyrics, those are all words I know. And like kanji, I can write. Um, but at the same time, despite it being written very simplistically and very like childlike innocence, it, there's a very deep passion behind it. And they, they speak very heartfelt and directly. So, uh, yeah, I would encourage you to look up a translation of these lyrics because I find it very interesting. Any particular phrases that tie in well to the movie? <laughs> uh, to be honest, not well. Um there are some moments in the second verse uh, that do seem to call back to Mewtwo, like wanting to keep pushing yourself and maybe pushing yourself too hard past limits and feeling frustrated that you can't communicate feelings or connect to people. And, you know, the first verse, I think you could obviously could apply any Pokemon song to Ash and Pikachu. But maybe the last section a bit calls to how Ash feels about Genesect and like trying to help it and trying to cheer it up when it's lost. But honestly, as sweet and touching as these lyrics are, they are pretty generic in their Pokemon-ness. There's not a lot of specific calls to this movie. Well, bringing up Mewtwo, you know, I've actually one of the, having re reviewed or re-listened to the, the first movie soundtrack many times, um, specifically the dub, um, pop album it doesn't seem to me like uh, on that particular one there's a, a great song for for Mewtwo's perspective on that album uh, do you think maybe this song does a little better job albeit on the Japanese side yeah um given that there's not a lot of references to Mewtwo to begin with like the bar is set very low I I mean I guess objectively it does better but again, I, I do feel this is very light. I'm kind of reaching for connections in saying that that connects to Mewtwo. I'm not sure that it was necessarily intentional. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I do kind of wonder. I have some ideas for songs. Uh, maybe Mewtwo is a difficult character to write a song about, but uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, any other thoughts on the content of the uh, the Japanese song there? Anything you found kind of interesting or wanted to point out? I think this was a good band to choose for doing Pokemon music that, again, just because their style is very sweet, very 
innocent and heartfelt and earnest. I do wish that they could have been brought into the project a bit more obviously, just because I think if you gave them the opportunity to work with the theme of the movie or, say, do a tie-in episode to the television series or something, they could work something quite magical. But I don't feel like anything is really specific to this movie. It's it's very Pokemon, what they do. But I, I don't feel that it was any... Like, this could have gone beneath any ending credits, I feel. So you're saying it just doesn't seem to be super specific to the events or characters in this movie, but it works as a Pokemon song. Is that what you're saying there? Yeah, not inappropriate, but I feel like they can do better if you allow them to. And if we had a situation like some of the English side songs or some of the earlier days of Pokemon, like when they got um, Satiko Kobayashi, and, and, you know, everything was, like, geared around that one project, I feel like Ikimonogakari could have stepped up to the plate and, like, really made a song about these characters. I, I feel like they're a band who could have elevated the project a lot more. Yeah, it would be interesting to know more of that. Well, I, th I think we've sort of uh, exhausted what we can sort of squeeze out there. Let's Let's go over to the English side on this one. So we're coming home, not as, well, it's kind of interesting because it sort of goes in phases. This is, uh, I think, instrumentally one of the, uh, like, uh, most dynamic in terms of, like, um, maybe dynamic isn't the right, well, it does use dynamics because actually the ver the uh, chorus is definitely much more uh, energetic and whatnot than the verses, which seem to be more subdued. Uh, overall, it's, mm. it's very much a, a, a pop uh, type of song there, but... Uh, and would you sort of agree with that, what I said there about the difference between the verses and the chorus? Yeah, and I'm very torn by it in a way, because on the one hand, I love the instrumentation and sort of that bouncy roller rink style synth, and then the guitar comes in, and I love the chorus. But because the chorus is so dynamic, I almost feel like when the verses come on, I feel a little bit let down, like... I don't know. I wonder if you agree or if this makes sense, but like, I feel like it's not as full as it could be. Like, it's still the demo track or something when I listen to the verses and then it gets to the chorus and like, suddenly it feels like it needs to be more. There, there's something lacking somehow, but I'm not articulating it well. <laughs> I suppose. But uh, actually, I kind of had the opposite uh, sort of perspective. I think I like the oh, really? <laughs> verse uh, instrumentation more than the chorus instrumentation. Um, I do appreciate that they are different. Um, I, I have to say that in terms of sound, um, well, it, it doesn't sound like Together We Make a Promise from the, the Manaphy movie in any real way. But it uh, much like that song, I think it, it doesn't really sound all that much. It sounds appropriate for Pokemon, but it doesn't sound like a typical Pokemon song. Does that kind of make sense to you, Anne? Yeah, there is something very different and unique about this one. And I guess probably that could come from the fact that you said she wrote this one herself. It was not written by the in-house like John Leffler and then, right? That's right, right. The, the Leffler and Wolfer did apparently do a fair bit of technical work on the actual recording and whatnot, but the actual writing is all credited to just Domain. So. Yeah, could be. Yeah, she brought some of her own flavor to this because it really it, there is a unique voice in it, despite it having some of the similar themes that we're used to. 
Yeah. So let's kind of talk about the lyrics. Um, I'd say a lot of the, uh, the as as with the last song, since the court or the verses vary each time. There's a uh, more maybe to talk about there. Um, I'm having trouble remembering everything there, but I know it's it's from the perspective of sort of like sitting on the moon and looking at the earth and stuff like that. And uh, there's there's a number of places that go. Uh, da, 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 and da, 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 in in the <laughs> in the verses and stuff like that, uh, little couplets of uh, like two different things happening. Uh, I can remember bits and pieces, but I'm having trouble remembering full lines there for some some reason. To be honest, it kind of reminds me towards the end of the movie, uh, Mewtwo takes the red Genesect and like lifts it way up into the like upper atmosphere and sort of gives it a perspective of like the well up to half the world i suppose is how much you can see it <laughs> once but you get the idea there and it sort of echoes that sentiment and i think it does kind of call out that which i think is one of the better scenes in this movie or better mm. uh, moments in this movie uh and any thoughts yeah i i got a bit of that sense too and like there is a lot of you know people looking for home and traveling far um, throughout this movie, um, the Genesect didn't so much travel, but they are kind of searching for their home and they've seen a lot. And you've got the kids on their Pokemon journey, obviously. It's somehow a little ironic, I think, in that the home that they get to in the movie is a new place. It's not, whereas this song seems to talk about coming home to a, an old familiar place, which the Genesect never get to, and the kids don't really stop traveling. Like, so in a way, I, I felt a little disconnected there, but there are some themes in the movie that do get called out in this song, if not in specific, in kind of the attitude. Seems like a fair assessment there. It's very nostalgic. I like the opening line, like, oh, we had some fun out there now, didn't we? Like, Yeah, I did want to sort of talk about the tone there. Remember in our, our Keldio discussion, particularly when we were discussing the uh, Japanese song we said that had kind of a a parent child type of uh, dynamic to it. This one has uh, it was about actually uh, Jess's niece, uh, but you get the idea there. I mean, you could I suppose say that she is talking down to that person. I don't think it's meant in any sort of negative way, though. It's not um, treating the other person as you know not smart enough to to get what you're talking about or stuff like that. It's, it's more mm -hmm. in the way of sort of how you approach that. Is that what I just said there? Does any of that make sense, Anne? It, it makes sense. I actually saw it more on a peer level, like, again, traveling companions type. Definitely, I think you can have sort of a mentor, mentor, student, sort of, or, or parent-child relationship as well. But yeah, no, that's not quite the tack that I got. But I think it's definitely valid as well. Yeah, so I, I think it 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 works reasonably well. I'm not sure I have too much else to say about it. I, I don't know that it's maybe well. Like I said, it just sounds different than really any other one. And I think that's what you get when you bring in outside folks like this who are not the usual writers, other than maybe like the first couple movies because those are you know those are written outside, but they sort of set the tone, which I think that a lot of the the following movies uh, sort of went with. Mm. Flying Without Wings is a well-written song, but its inclusion on the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack is a bit odd. There is plenty of flying in the movie, 
but most of it clearly involves wings. If you're willing to ignore that disparity, however, there are a number of lines that do match up well. We see several friendships, familiar and new, featured in the film. You can argue that characters like Professor Oak and Slow King lead reasonably solitary lives. For that matter, you could even say the same thing about Shmoody Island itself, being fairly isolated from the rest of the world. If you're looking for the most Pokémon of the lyrics, though, those are probably in the bridge, as striving towards the seemingly impossible is a running theme of the franchise. Even after that, however, there is one more parallel to be drawn. Delia winds up coming face-to-face -face with Ash in a somewhat unexpected time and place, at least for him. While this final part of the song may have been originally intended as being between two lovers, I find that it still works for the mother-son reunion. Anyway, the next time someone tells you this song doesn't match up with the movie, I hope you have some different ideas to give them. Thanks. Alright, well I think that sort of covers things there. Let's sort of do a compare, contrast, and maybe decide which one we like better. Uh, we sort of talked about how, you know, Smiling Face, definitely the louder, more energetic song. We're Coming Home only really gets there in some of the choruses. If it's about which of these I prefer to listen to as music, I think it might be Smiling Face, actually, in my particular case. I think that's definitely the more fun song and, and things of that nature. But I think for purposes of sort of tying into the movie and, like I said, tying into some of the visual things we see there, we're coming home, I have to give points for that. It's, to be honest, in sort of a way, it's kind of a reverse of the movie four scenario. You know, Celebi R.A.T. versus Please Let There Be Good Weather Tomorrow. It's not entirely dissimilar, except, of course, the roles are reversed. I think the the English one does a better job of sort of fitting up with the movie. I don't know. I, and it's maybe more structurally more interesting, whereas... Um, the Japanese one is more energetic and, and definitely catchier in uh, a musical sense. Anne, are you, you, you sort of on the same wavelength there? Yeah, again, I, as a song that I like listening to, I definitely prefer Egao by Ikimonogakari, but given that this is like the last of the black and white movies and there's such a nostalgia feel of like, like, like we know as an audience that we're going to be leaving Iris and Silen and this chapter of the adventure is coming to a close and they're going home in a sense. And, you know, as it says, every journey starts with friends we want to see and, and then, you know, you leave. I think as a, as an ending credit song, we're coming home gets that little millimeter just because I, I think it ties into a few things that are happening with the specific movie if not strongly enough to maybe push it over the edge as an ending theme. But <laughs> it, it's a close call. It is, it is. Like I said, there's definitely ways in which each of these songs excels in a particular area. And that's a kind of interesting thing there. But yeah, I think I will give a very narrow lead to uh, We're Coming Home, at least in terms of being a song for this movie. Um, mm. But if we're asking which one's on my playlist, the narrow lead swings a little bit in the other direction. So it's... <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I, it's just... 
this is one of the hardest ones I think to call because they both do certain things well. And I don't know. I think I may just have to leave this as an undecided somewhat, but um, <laughs> I, I get a lows a lot. You, you can have a turn. <laughs> I know we're allowed ties and that's all fine and stuff, but <laughs> because I can differentiate the two, I feel like I should be able to make some sort of decision here. Um, but in this case, I guess I, I kind of can't. Well, thank goodness we have two movies. <laughs> or two songs, you mean. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> two opportunities for them both to see the light of day. Okay, well, a couple things you want to talk about here. I think the next thing we're going to talk about is the score. This is, at least for a while, going to be one of the last movies where they port over the Japanese score and sort of bring that one over. In addition to watching the movie uh, again today, I did also re-listen to the score album and uh, sort of uh, got my, my thoughts there. Um, Anything really stick out to you? Well, I can't remember. Now, I've never actually listened to, because I haven't made a point to do so, kind of unfortunately. Any, is any of the stuff in this film ported back over from the Japanese version of the first Pokemon movie? Um... Like, I mean, I couldn't, I, without comparing them side by side, I couldn't say, but like Team Rocket, I heard their theme, like the theme we always hear. I'm sure there's some variation, but um, I didn't hear like any Mewtwo type specific music, like nothing like that really stood out. But yeah, I, I didn't hear anything that really harkened back to the first movie and being that this is a, a different Mewtwo, that could be why. But I, I mean, I did hear all the usual things, like I said, Team Rocket and the like. Yeah, one recurring thing I do remember, I cannot quote it off the top of my head, but there's this very low, like three or four note motif that comes in periodically throughout the, <gasps> the film. I'm not really sure if that's supposed to be Mewtwo's theme or the Genesect theme. I thought it was theme. the Genesect. Because, yeah, like, one of the times you hear it is when the Genesect army comes and attacks Pikachu, right? I, I, unfortunately, since I can't – I know it if I heard it, and uh, uh, but I can't quote it. It's not th th that distinct a theme that it gets stuck in my head as much as some other stuff. Um, huh. We might not be talking about the same, but that is one thing that did stick out to me was that track at like the first beginning of it with that very those very low drums and then it kind of ramps up for a bit and it seemed to happen whenever the Genesect appeared. But you're right, they do appear pretty much the same time Mewtwo does most of the time. And I r always remember never liking the whole all the music in that particular scene, but just that first bit with the low notes and drums really did stick out to me as kind of interesting and unique and special, at least for a few seconds. Yeah, like I said, just to refresh the audience, uh, I am in the Shinji Miyazaki isn't ear-piercing, he isn't terrible or anything like that, but the music does not stand as well on its own after the 10th movie. Um, I don't know if he's getting a different direction from the people producing the film that are telling him to go in a certain way, or what it is like that. But uh, I asked you about Mewtwo uh, in particular because we know that, you know, when Celebi comes back in the Zoroark movie, right. both Celebi and apparently Entei's theme also comes back in that one. And I guess also I choose you on the Japanese side a little bit. And I, I kind of would like to have more of that. Uh, and maybe that's just me getting used to things 
in the uh, first three dub movies where they <laughs> try to do do try to put in uh, themes. Most notably in the second one, of course, there's the the legend or Lugia's theme in that one, and I kind of think I want more of that. Yeah. In these, like I said, so like I said. There's a difference between I don't want to say that that Shinji Miyazaki's work here is, you know, it's it's the worst thing ever because there's there's way too much of that on the internet and that's that would be an exaggeration of mammoth proportions really if I if I try saying like that. Um, there's there's music that is not bad, but I don't feel it enhances my experience all that much in the uh in the movie the way it might for some other folks who are more used to that and maybe experience the first couple of films in their original japanese form first or have watched them that way more i would like to point out i this this may not you know be a a compliment per se to shinji miyazaki i don't want it to sound like a slam um but I do notice that in a lot of the Japanese scores, uh, particularly in this movie, like they make some good use of silence where there's no score. And again, I, I don't want that to sound like there's no music, so it's good, like because his music is bad, like more like just whether it's his doing or the sound mixers doing, there's a, a good usage of when to not have bombastic scoring in the background. I, I do feel like this movie especially had some really nice moments where they employed no score at all. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly try and do too much with the score or put it in places where it doesn't need it or where it doesn't make sense. Uh, or where, sometimes where just nothing is more effective or just, you know, city background noise. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the the composer doesn't get paid for those, but... Uh, <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so like I, say, I I don't mean it as a slam. I just... <laughs> I, I did notice a few times when there was no score at all, and it worked really well for me. So, But uh, you mentioned the city there, and that did remind me of something I did want to talk about in regards to this score. Uh, this movie takes place, well, really within two different contexts. One of those is in the city, uh, this very New York-like city, and also in the... Um, the arboretum or nature preserve slash park slash whatever that's in there. And I feel like they could have done more with that. Uh, maybe having like two versions of a lot of the themes, one for when they're inside the, the nature area and one when they're outside in the city um, mm -hmm. for different characters and stuff like that. I think you could do some interesting things with that because as it stands, um, I don't know that there's much in here other than that. Like I said, that theme I cannot quote for presumably the Genesect that really sets this one apart from other scores out there. Um, I think they could have done something on on that level. I, I agree. And it, it kind of goes back to your point of like, we don't know how much of this is Shinji Miyazaki kind of peaked a few years ago, or it could be the directing team putting him in a new direction. But given how like the animation went so hardcore trying to recreate like Times Square and city scenes and Central Park as well, there was a chance to be very creative in the music of this movie to give you that sense of city and that sense of nature. And uh, as you said, I don't feel there was a ton of contrast and they could have done something very unique um in the same way they did something very unique for you know evoking the supernatural forest in celebi 
environment here could have driven a lot of more choices than it appears to have. Yeah, so that's that's most of what I have to say on the score there. Now, there is, um, on both sides, there's a use of an opening theme. Now, the Japanese side is a little interesting. Um, it doesn't use, let's see, what, uh, Be an Arrow version 2, which I think would have been very strange in the scene that uh, it would have used. They use something called Summerly Slope, which I should have listened to also before this. But, uh, Anne, why don't you go into that a little bit? Well, you know, honestly, I don't have much to say about Summerly Slope. Like, it's like it was the final opening theme for Best Wishes. It was kind of the season da like Decalora adventure arc. Um, so it's it's just kind of upbeat and adventury, and lots of stuff about like the sun peeking through the cracks and smiles and summer. So. In the sense that this is a summer movie and the ending theme is smile, smiling face, like it fits in that sense. And the the opening theme that it's used in is very much about, you know, the Pokemon getting out of their Pokeballs and enjoying the sun and the togetherness and the nature. So like, so it fits the context it's in, but like, I don't have a ton to say about it. Like, I remember liking it when the series aired. But it's not my – it's never been my favorite opening theme. I'm sure I'd recognize it if I heard it. On the English side, we have It's Always You and Me, performed by, I believe, Catherine Rayo and Neil Coomer. Um, so different person on the male side of the the thing there. They did duets for all three seasons of uh, Best Wishes in the U.S. And this is the one they came with this one. And then it's extended for this this movie – Neil, I'm trying to. I did an interview with him. He has some interesting stuff that he's done over the years in in various levels and things of that nature. I don't know that. I I think of the three, maybe it's my least favorite, but it's not a bad song or anything like that. I do I do like the um, I like the fact that they did duets uh, on the English side for Gen Five. Yeah, I don't have a ton of thoughts about it either. I do like the chorus though. Yeah, so that's what we've got there. And then there's there's one more musical aspect we should talk about. So we, we said this was the last of the Best Wishes movies. And there is a short associated with this movie. Now, of course, uh, on the uh, English side, these shorts just kind of rotate through Pokemon TV. So you've got to, you know, just uh, wait for it to come around again. Um Evie and Friends, I think is what it's called. It's obviously meant mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, X and Y, they have the new fairy type. And, of course, with that, we get uh, the new uh, Lucian, um Sylveon, which is the new fairy type. If you look at the score on the Japanese uh, score album, they do have a, a bunch of selections from there. They're more playful and... Uh, actually cover a fairly wide range of genres on that score. I'm not sure I have too much else to say about it. There are some some pretty uh, enjoyable uh, tracks there. Um, there's also an ending theme, at least in English, called World of Wonder, which I believe is performed by Catherine Rayo. Unfortunately, since, like mm-hmm. I said, we don't have ready access to the English version of the short, um, I do hope someday Pokemon will put those out in some sort of collection or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the ending theme for the Japanese one is uh, Let's Join Hands, Teo Sunago, which oh. was the ending theme for the series. Yeah, that song, I, I can't quote it, but I, I know I'd, I'd recognize it instantly if I heard it. I can hear it a little bit in my head, but not enough to <laughs> sort of quote. But that is 
That is an awesome little song, I have to say. Oh, yeah. No, I love it, too. And, like, it's performed by Momoiro Clover Zed's, like, sister group Mm. who did the previous theme. Oh, (laughs) it's so cute. But World of Wonder, I also really quite like. Like, it's just got a great sound to it, and it's so full of energy. I'd have to listen to it again, unfortunately. Like I said, these things are not readily available. I'm sure you can find the ending theme song somewhere. Yeah, so nice nice short there, obviously well-timed. But um, I think that kind of um, is all the musical stuff we get to talk about with this one. I, we did get one comment from a previous thing. I will read it out here just to be sort of complete. It doesn't have yeah. really any direct relation to the movies per se, but I did get a comment on Reddit that I did want to read out here. This is from uh, Unovity, and this is a comment. Uh, I guess I posted something at some point about, let's see, what's it called? Oh, Victory Lies Before You, or Victory Is Right In Front Of You, or whatever whatever the official like name of that track. So this is the track in, in Generation 5. They do something a little different. When the gym leader is down to their last Pokemon, they change the uh, thing there. They do some dynamic stuff, actually, just in general. Like, when your Pokemon is low on health, the music changes. But also, when the gym leader is down to their last Pokemon, it plays this song that is a sort of amped-up version of the Pokemon game theme. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of is supposed to, you know, as you're getting down there to the end of the battle, it's supposed to sort of pump you up there. And, and there's a, an arrangement of it that appears quite often in black and white in the anime. And I, I oh. part of me kind of felt it was a little overused there. Um, but, uh, you know, but he sort of said, uh, let's see, uh, used for some sort of, felt that it was used when it made sense, uh, for some sort of comeback or amazing moment or something like that, or an evolution, new moves, let's see, saving Pikachu from Team Rocket. And, uh, this person really liked that. It's a good track. I won't, I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> it was maybe the fact you only hear it about, you know, eight or 10 times. I don't know if they use it for the Elite Four in the games, you know, makes it, more special and having it in as many episodes as they did usually towards the, the climax of that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was a little overused there, but I did want to read that out. Um, if you have comments <laughs> about this or any of our discussions about the Pokemon music, uh, the feedback we get from our viewers is, is some of the most important stuff we do here. Cause it really points out stuff to us and, and things of that nature. And did you have any thoughts on that uh, little uh, arrangement there? They haven't released it commercially, I don't think, because they haven't done um, an anime backing track release since the end of Generation 4, if memory serves me. So this one has never, this arrangement has never been commercially released, I don't think. Oh, really? Uh, oh, that yeah. is a, a shame. But like, as far as climactic anime music getting reused, like for me... Hoenn's use of advanced generation, the advanced generation theme, the dun 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 dun, dun every time the comeback was made at the climax, that really got to me. I have never noticed a piece of music ever hit me that bad. So I imagine, I imagine this track we're talking about probably just it can't possibly have been overused as much as advanced adventure was. <laughs> Well, that that song did eventually, the instrumental advanced adventure did eventually make it into dub, but I think it might have been used there more sparingly, possibly just because it, it took them a while to clear the underlying composition for the West. Um, and they weren't possibly, didn't, but yeah, didn't use it initially. I think I'm not sure when the first time it was used was. I know it's in uh, the Jirachi movie and stuff like that. Um, 
I no, I think it's earlier because there was a while where I was watching for my podcast every single episode and I could time the point in the episode where that theme would come in. That is where you left off your your podcast that you're hopefully getting back into soon. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I get back in, I'll comment and see if <laughs> see if it's still getting used as outrageously. <laughs> So that's most of what we have to say for the music of Genesis and the Legend Awakened. Our next episode, so this, as we said, is the last black and white generation movie. And so we like to do a little bit of a special episode when we go from one generation to another. And in this case, our next episode, which we intend to record sometime in April, is um, going to be live Pokemon music. Now, we're not talking about the Pokemon live stage show. And we're also not talking about Pokemon Symphonic Evolutions. What we're really talking about here are live versions of vocal Pokemon songs uh, that are uh, available in one form or another. Some of these are going to be a lot easier to find than others. Uh, Ann and I are each going to pick a couple, but if you have ideas out there in the audience, go ahead, type those in or give us a comment or an email at some point, and we uh, may try and get those in as comments or whatever. Uh, but the three I've picked out are a live version of M2M's Don't Say You Love Me from uh, that was performed in Australia. Um, I've also got uh, want to talk about a live version of Westlife's Flying Without Wings. I think it's from Ireland or something like that. Uh, that one's a little easier to find. You can find it officially on YouTube. And then the third one is something I just found within the last month or so is a live version of Brother, My Brother by Blessed Union of Soul. I always forget if that's Soul or Souls. But anyway, sorry about that to the band. (laughs) Um, In any case, uh, that one I just found out very recently. And I guess it's something they – when I saw them live in 2005, uh, when I did the interview with Elliot, they did not have it in the repertoire. I'm guessing that's something they added later as, uh, as the people who saw that movie grew up and got to be old enough to start going to their shows and stuff. But those are kind of the three I've picked, and I think you have a couple selections as well. Yeah, I've since I'm on theme with uh, Ikimonogakuri, I've got one of their one of their lives performing Egal, and I have um, a song that you have seen performed live-ish through your DVD if you um, had the original Pokemon 2000 DVD, and then my third is a secret because I haven't figured it out yet. So if you want to petition me for a particular song you love. This is the time. Yeah, yeah. And and folks at home, there are some others I can think of off the top of my head that are uh, we didn't talk we didn't mention just now. So there may be a part two, or you can certainly suggest your own. Uh, but that's going to be our next episode. After that, uh, in May, we're probably going to be recording a discussion of the music of Detective Pikachu. That's going to be probably what we're going to do in May. And then in June, we'll probably resume with the first X and Y movie. Uh, and then that'll be, let's see, oh, that'll be Diancy and the Cocoon of Destruction. Uh, so that gives you an idea. And obviously, we are kind of running out of movies, but we have some other topics lined up. But uh, like I said, next episode, live Pokemon music. And until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. 
If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. All right. Well, let, let's talk in this bonus segment, Anne, about uh, the movie itself. Uh, overall, I, I guess I was okay with this movie, but I think maybe it's lost a little bit of its relevance, both it and actually, to a certain extent, the short, just because of the the time that passed. You may remember, I think, when this movie was originally announced and all this stuff, we didn't know what Mega Evolution was. And mm. now that that's uh, been a thing for a while, maybe this movie loses a little bit of its uh, what it had going for it. Uh, any thoughts there? Well... I mean, I guess it depends on what parts of the movie stick out for you. Like, for me, it's definitely lost a little bit of its magic from, like, when it was brand new and shiny. Um, But at the same time, as you said, uh, that moment where Mewtwo lifts up Genesect and kind of shows it the world, like, that's still a very poignant moment. And, like, you know, given the world we live in today, maybe almost more relevant and... Um, at least on the English side, female Mewtwo, that voice actress is pretty boss. Like, that was some amazing acting. Like, I just love her voice, and that still holds up. And, like, that performance and the choices that the actress made. So, like, I, I, I guess it just depends on what parts of the movie stood out to you when you first saw it versus now as to whether or not it's lost its relevance. But for me... A lot of the stuff that really charmed me about it and, you know, was kind of a breath of fresh air after I rather did not like Keldeo too much. <laughs> um, like that stuff is, I still see in it when I watch it now. I kind of get what you're saying there. Yeah. I get, as you may recall, you had a lower opinion of the, the Keldeo movie than I did. So I guess you I might did. have seen this as, as a step up. I, like I said, I don't think it's. It's not in sort of like like there's a couple Pokemon movies that I I really, for one reason or another, are just things I, I don't generally rewatch. Uh, this one has not really been calling to me or anything. It's obviously not a follow up to Pokemon the first movie or Mewtwo Returns or anything like that. As we said, mm-hmm. it's a canonically somewhat separate Mewtwo. Um, the the movie doesn't really explicitly say that too much i think that's more in the promotional materials and stuff like that but uh, and the feminine voice kind of implies that, that does that does make things a little bit different uh i don't know do you think they kind of tried to have it both ways though like they obviously brought this back in part because of mega evolution and stuff like that you know it's possible it wasn't until well into the promotion of the movie that they did the writers and stuff they just knew they had this new thing, but they didn't know what Mega Evolution was. Mm. It's possible that was the case, too. Right. Well, like, I'm of a couple minds, because we're kind of getting into the child audience versus the adult audience. Like, for a child watching Pokemon, you're right, they probably, whether it's a feminine voice or a masculine voice, they probably don't care. They probably don't care whether this is the same Mewtwo or not. They just Mewtwo is just cool. And they probably are more intrigued by the switching of forms and, you know, having a light form or a speed form or whatever. And me- the new mega evolution that was coming. But, you know, as an adult fan, I mean, some some adults are also attracted to that too. But for as an adult fan, I couldn't care less about whatever special trick 
Mewtwo's mega evolution, form change, etc. was. Like, I wanted to know about the character and the journey. So I think it kind of kind of depends on what you got out of it when you came into it the first time. And I, I think there are probably some audience members who they were catering to specifically with Mewtwo, as you said, like, because it is a character and because mega evolution is a thing. But at the same time, there are people in their audience that would not care about that, would not care about the gimmicks. And so the story of Mewtwo and Genesect is what they focus on for those people, I think. But so like, I, I don't know, as far as having it both ways, yes, no, maybe. <laughs> yeah, just as a species Mewtwo is, I, I will say, pretty interesting. And I, like I said, we still don't know a ton about the 3D Mewtwo Strikes Back that's coming out this fall, if that's going to be like a shot-for-shot shot remake or what they're doing there. I, I kind of have my suspicion, uh, I mentioned this in a previous live stream, that part of the reason that um, uh, Warner Brothers took over Detective Pikachu has something to do with that movie that since they distributed the original version there, they may have some of like the separate audio tracks. So that's, that's a whole nother ball of wax though. Um, I do want to go back to to Mewtwo. Do you think, you know, Mewtwo does have an alternate, a different um, mega evolution they could have used in this one. Um, I'm not sure exactly when we found that out because there's a mega Mewtwo. I forget if this one is X or Y, but the other one like changes type and changes, other things where I think this the one they use here is is still pure psychic and is more of a stat redistribution type of mega evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget. I, like I said, the other one becomes part fighting, kind of like a, a more powerful uh, Gallade. Um, and that might have been given them some different possibilities there, I suppose. Uh, any thoughts? I, I don't remember everything statistically that happens there, but uh, right. I just want to ask you. Well, speed form fits the character arc that Mewtwo was going through, where it wanted to keep pushing its limits and keep going further and going faster. And, you know, how fast can I, can I go? So to be able to switch and discover its speed form fit its character's journey. But as you say, had they done the other option for Mega Evolution, they would have had other factors to play with. And, If they used that, they would have had to have written a different story and emotional journey for Mewtwo, I think. But that's not to say that whatever new thing they wrote wouldn't have been worthwhile, equally poignant. Mm. Yeah, I guess that alternate universe version of this movie is is something. Yeah. uh, (laughs) But um, when they reboot it 10 years down the line, we'll see. I suppose. Uh, I do also want to ask, speaking of Mega Evolutions, you know, there's a Pokemon that did get a Mega Evolution that is in this movie, but does not Mega Evolve, and that's Ash's Charizard, uh, which also has, I guess, two Mega Evolutions possible. I'm not sure exactly how you would squeeze that into the movie. I'm not sure exactly, like, given what the movie is, I'm not sure where you would squeeze that in, (laughs) but in hindsight, now that we know that there are are two Mega Evolutions of Charizard that are possible, what do you think there? That almost could have been its other separate story because Ash would have had to come across like the Megastone and <laughs> all the fun things. But it would be nice. It would be so nice. I've been wanting to see Ash's Charizard Mega Evolve. So, but yeah, you could almost, there's enough plot, necessi- necess- a lot of plot things that are necessary to happen for that, that it could be its own separate movie. There's not a place to squeeze it in, I don't think. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing to consider there. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the other thing I want to mention. Speaking of, uh, I kind of want there to be a little more to this movie in terms of dialogue and stuff like that to sort of flesh out the the characters a little bit more. Especially since this is a new Mewtwo, but that's where I kind of came up with the the question of are they trying to have it both ways? Well, they definitely there is a moment where they meet Mewtwo, and you can tell that Iris and Silen. Like, this is a wow moment. Like, we have never seen a Mewtwo. And then Ash is, like, you can tell he has probably seen a Mewtwo before. Like, that's how I interpret their reactions in that scene. So, yeah, you might be right in that sense. I, there's nothing to suggest that he recognizes this Mewtwo or that it recognizes him. But, yeah, there there may be something to that. Well... But you're right, there's a missed opportunity there to not address it and thus get some more history and backstory on all the characters. And I guess uh, there are a couple points. I thought there was just really one, but I guess there are several where Ash uh, sort of uh, puts himself in between um, the two opposing sides and whatever argument or battle is going on now. And I uh, do kind of wonder... If I had been in a Japanese movie theater when this movie had premiered, what the crowd reaction to those moments Ooh. would have been. What a um, question. Because there is one point where he just kind of walks out kind of nonchalantly, or I forget exactly how it happens. I think I remembered it different than what actually happened in this movie, but you get what I'm saying there? Well, he's getting real good at being the the big darn hero of that universe. Like, just running in between the danger and... Praying for peace is just what he does. Like, like Ash is just the dude who stands in front of the tank every time. So I, I don't know. That is a good question, though, because, again, we have an audience that recycles itself. and But we also have an, some of the audience that is very aware of that history. Like, So some audiences would be genuinely shocked by Ash's actions. Some would be just like, oh, this is Ash doing his thing. Like, the sense of peril would be different, I think, for different people. That's an interesting question. I wish we could time travel. And <laughs> Let's see. What else do I kind of want to talk about? I do want to go back. Like I said, I know this is supposed to be more about the movie itself. So let's see. Do you think it is difficult to write a song about Mewtwo or from Mewtwo's perspective or something like that? Uh, any thoughts of that nature? I don't think it's hard to write a song I do think it's hard to write a song about Mewtwo that would be appropriate for um, a Pokemon movie ending theme. Because just by nature, both of the Mewtwo's we've seen, um, Feminine Mewtwo has been a little little less emo, but like Mewtwo 1 has kind of a death wish at points. Like there's a lot of heavy, deep emo thinking. So I think it would be difficult to come up with a song that was specific and true to that character that was something that could speak to young children and could fit underneath the credits of a movie that usually ends in a happy place. The Lucario movie, not so much, but for the most part, things end on a positive note, and then we go off into the sunset. So I think there is definitely a challenge in writing something specific to either of the Mewtwo's, just because most of their character arc is wrapped up in emo. Um, but I don't think it's impossible. I, I definitely think it's a choice that you would have to be very bold and deliberate to make, um, and which might be why 
songwriters have not so far. They they gravitate towards other themes of the movie or other characters. So I'll I'll lay out my fantasy uh, answer Do. for this question, which is to rewrite the NXS song "Searching" to follow Mewtwo's storyline from the first movie. I like this alternate universe where we have different movies and different ending themes. Yeah, like I said, <laughs> "We're Coming Home" was not the only song submitted for for this one on the English side. So uh, I don't know too much about the other one. She didn't really tell me too much about it, but uh, kind of a, a neat thing there. <laughs> 